everybody, this is Townsend. Thank you so much for tuning in. The goal of this podcast is to cover a vast variety of topics regarding mental health, struggles, share people's stories, and hopefully remind you that you're not alone. I hope you enjoy. What is up, everybody? I'm so excited. Tonight, we're going to be chit-chatting with Cecily Pamplin. She and I go way back in the day. So excited to get to chat with her. And to catch up, we're going to be talking about overcoming addiction. Okay, that was the weirdest introduction I've ever had, but I love it. All right, so I was telling people, we got way back. You're like my second cousin, half-removed, uncle's sister's brother's grandfather's grandson's friend. Did you really just say it all correctly? Because I was... Yeah, I think I got it right. I'm going to say that that's an A plus and you got it right. Thank you so much. Who is Cecily? Tell me, tell us a little bit about you. Like other than having 72 dogs barking outside. (laughs) Yeah. And a woman wall. Yeah. So, um, you know, and we'll get into this later. There is certainly a Cecily before I got sober and there's a Cecily now, but I think at the root of it all, um, no matter what's happening, I'm a dog lover. I'm now a dog mom. Wouldn't be a dog mom if I wasn't sober. Um, Let's see. I am a creator of sorts, I think. I'm a writer. I've always loved words. And uh, my family is my jam. Um, And I uh, have, you know, four best friends who I've been friends with for like decades. Uh, We could not break up if we tried. So uh, a friend, dog lover, writer, sister, daughter, you know, all the things. So, um, but most importantly, right now, Cecily is sober and um, I do everything I can just to share, share my story. And I'm very passionate about all things addiction, all things recovery, no matter what stage you're in it. Uh, um, So yeah, that's why I'm here talking to you. So I love it so much. Yeah, I've kept up with your blog. So you started a blog, which we'll talk about later. um, And your post God, like it's, I love people that are one passionate and two really good with words. Like you have this way of posting things. I remember even in college when they were like, we would all post those like somber, like lyrics from songs, but like we'd post something and yours always like would tug at your heart and then make you laugh until you cried. <laughs> like you have this super creative way. So you've always been like, I love reading all your stuff, but now that it's like passionate about something meaningful, it's just so cool to see you post about all that. Um, so tell us a brief summary about your story. Like why is addiction personal to you? Well, because, um, you know, I am an addict. Uh, I do not identify myself as that only, but I'm, I must remember that that is, that is wired in me, you know, um, I, I am an addict. So, um, you know, four years ago, I re- I made this, well, I probably made the realization six years ago. Um, tried to handle it on my own for about two years. Um, and then, uh, yeah, now I am fully aware. And um, it's just personal to me because if I do not keep it personal to me and at the forefront of who I am, then I will, I will slip. And um, I will not have the things like a job relationship. I'm not even talking material things. I will not have the important stuff um, if I don't stay sober. So, um, you know, that's why it is uh, important to me. Um, And I just, I watch, you know, I've had people who um, have kept me grounded throughout all of this and, um, you know, but that's not everyone's story. I've also listened to a bunch of people who, you know, battled it alone um, and um, have a, a totally d- different respect for them and admiration. And so my point in saying that is, um, you know, I try to, uh, I remember how grounded my people have kept me. So I try to be that for anybody in the recovery world. Um, you know, I'm always gonna ask my recovery family how they're doing way too many times and check in too many times, you know, um, because I, I don't know if I would have been as strong in my recovery without my people. So, um, yeah. So I, I'm not coming from an addiction perspective, but I started this mental health journey, whatever you want to call it, project movement, because 
I went through a super hard time myself. I felt completely alone and isolated and I made a pact to myself. Like I'm not going to be that person that doesn't check on my people too many times. Right? Like we need more people like you. So that just makes my heart sing that you're one of those people that does that anyway. It's man, life's hard and we're not meant to do it by ourselves, you know? And I, you know, um, I mean, we really scientifically are wired to need people and, um, it, it took me a really long time to realize that. But um, yeah, I had in, in this, in my, my early sobriety, I had someone very close to me say, if you're ever having a down day, you know, if you're ever feeling tempted or whatever, um, pick up your phone and text somebody random and just say, hey, what's up? How are you doing? And they could look at it and be like, I'm fine. Like, why are you? This is weird. I haven't heard from you in 17 years. But it takes that power away from your low point and all of a sudden your mind's shifted and um that's another thing about that that keeps me sober is um you know that's a new coping skill is shifting my mind and my focus to like how can i help somebody else today but i'm not gonna sit here and preach and act like that's all i do because i am naturally selfish too you know um so i forget sometimes that i need to do that but it it certainly helps yeah we're all we're selfish that's how we're here um, okay, so how did your story start? Like, when did you, I guess, when did you recognize that you were truly struggling or dealing with addiction? Google told me I was an alcoholic. There, I'm picking back up. Ready? Okay. I um, was at a point in my life where I was, uh, it was like 2015, 2016, and um, I was working a lot of hours because I hadn't finished school yet, you know, and I was just trying all, I, I was trying to fill a void, I know now, but um, I was, I was in this vicious cycle because I was taking Adderall, which some people do, some people are, and that's fine for me, it is bad news bears, like I cannot take it, but I, so it started this cycle and I was taking it and then I couldn't sleep and so then I was drinking because I couldn't sleep and then the next day, you know, the Adderall also helped with the hangover, um, so it was just, it was never ending, right? And um, I knew I wasn't treating my body right. And um, my hands would shake a lot every morning. And um, I Googled, you know, why? Because I thought like, well, you know, you're taking this medicine that takes your appetite away. And so then you don't eat and then you get home and you drink and then, you know, you don't eat then. Uh, so I just thought it was like related to food or whatever. And like the first thing that came up was, you know, that that could be signs of alcohol withdrawal, you know, do your shakes go away when you have a drink? And I was like, well, crap, um, I am an alcoholic. And uh, so this starts those two years of me trying to handle it by myself. Hey there. Thank you so much for tuning in to You're Not Alone with Townsend. If you're enjoying these live streams and podcasts and want to see them continue, head over to patreon.com slash Music. Your support means that the research and time and effort that goes into each one of these episodes can continue, and we can reach out to more guests and do more awesome things in 2022. All right, back to the conversation. And I thought, you know, I was convinced I was going to stop drinking by myself because I had things to celebrate. I was hoping I would have a wedding one day and like have babies one day and like dinner school one day and get promoted one day. And I thought, well, alcohol has to be a part of that. Um, and you know, so yeah, I tried like to taper off. I tried to limit things like, uh, no hard liquor, no drinks during the week um, beer and wine only, you know, and it never worked. And then I was like, okay, well maybe if I just start drinking more water, I'll be okay. I mean, it is insane. The lies we tell ourselves to stay in that comfort, you know? And so, um, that is when I realized, you know, that I was struggling. And so then, uh, fast forward, I guess, to like 20, 2017, um, barely, Okay, so 2017, I um, was like working part time and going to school. And I was like, yeah, all this extra time I'm going to study. And I did not because every uh, person who enjoys drinking loves to day drink. You know, it's like the best thing ever. So it just, um, that's where all my extra time went. So at that point, my body was like, 
sound the alarms, you know, like you are sick. And it was just rebelling. And um, I barely scraped by those ho the holidays of 2017. You know, some people, they, they drink for decades and their bodies never went through anything like what mine did. Um, some people might have gotten there a lot sooner than two and a half years. You know, their body might've been sounding the alarms. It, everybody's different. Um, but something in me was not having it. I'm sure that the Adderall and the Red Bull did not help. So, um, yeah, I, uh, at that point I, um, well, I guess that's kind of when the, the, the real story starts. So I'll let you ask your next question. Uh, and then we'll, we'll get there. But it, it was Google that my good friend, Google that told me and, uh, you know, Google, she can be, she can be pretty upfront sometimes. She needed to be <laughs> yeah, like Cecily. Yeah. Well, who knows? I mean, big brother, you know, our phones know everything now. So I don't know if, I, I know my phone never heard me say I'm an alcoholic out loud. I'm sure that they used enough context clues to know. It was, yeah, it was using your locations and your receipts from the <laughs> stores. And it's like, yeah, we need to have an intervention. Yeah. That's yeah. Um, yeah. No, so all jokes that we joke, it's very much serious matter. But when do you feel like it started? Do you feel like it started maybe back in college when your friends were having fun? I know you talked about taking Adderall, but like when, did, what do you think kind of like sparked all of it? The Adderall or? No, I, I never, I have never enjoyed an alcoholic beverage as a normal person. I, I, I say that like, um, that's, you know, I, I have never had a normal relationship with it. And what I mean by that is, um, one drink was was absolutely never enough. Um, as soon as I had one sip, I had a compulsion that was triggered, you know, um, and and I use the word compulsion because for that, for some reason, that word resonated with me in the very early stages of my sobriety. And um, it just is stronger to me than the word addiction. But it it felt like I was run on a motor as soon as I had that um, you know, those impulsive moments, like those impulsive buys at the store or whatever. Um, it, there, nine times out of 10, a drink was prefaced by, oh, forget it, just have a drink, you're going to anyway. You know, it was very impulsive and compulsive. And um, then by the time that first drink was in me, it was, it was over. I really didn't care. So I didn't really even start drinking like that until I was 18. Um, and, uh, but, it was, you know, it was the why for me. It wasn't how often, because I certainly didn't drink every day when I lived in Conway and I was trying to graduate and everything. Um, I eventually got to that point, but um, it was always an escape. Um, happy, sad, stressed, completely depressed, crying, doing cartwheels. It normal day, everybody else is doing it. No one's doing it. It was um, a time to drink for me. If I was awake, it was a good time to drink. And so, um, you know, I think I started to recognize that probably close to 2012 because, you know, I drank with all of my friends and all of my people normally. Um, and I use those quotes again because society tells us it's normal to be the girl who always wants more, the girl who's always down to party. The, they, it tells us it's cute to black out and all the other embarrassing things that we do. Um, they say that it's okay because alcohol is not that bad. It's not a drug, you know, whatever. So I drank with everybody else, you know, for those first four years. But what I didn't realize is that like everybody else around me might've been drinking and partying and stuff, but they were also taking care of business, you know? And so 2012 hits and that's, you know, if I would have done college in four years, that's when I would have graduated. And my best friends and all my people were talking about like, you know, um, grad school and their first big girl job and, and um, their relationships and their plans for families and all of this. And I wasn't even close to my undergrad, you know? Um, and from there, you know, I skipped classes. I ended up quitting, uh, dance team which is you know that is when i you know uh that's probably the first time i i quit something very important 
because it was too hard. And that was an effect of, of my drinking and stuff. So um, it definitely started then, you know, because it was an escape from, I heard someone say this the other day, um, and I'm not going to say that person's name, obviously, but it was an escape from living with Cecily. I just couldn't live with Cecily. I just, um, you know, I didn't like who I was. And so every time that's who I was escaping from or what I was escaping from. Uh, so then I got older and, you know, it's not just like grad school and all this. It's like weddings and people raising tiny humans. And you know what I mean? Like all of this big major stuff is happening. And that is when, you know, probably between the years of 2014 and 2017 comparison came in and comparison was my bottle of vodka's best friend, you know, um, and they just tore me down together. So um, I just thought, I knew, I knew I had missed this social calendar and all of these milestones. And I just, um, you know, they call this self-run riot, I think. And it's this selfish, this anxious feeling that the whole world is, is judging you. And if you think about it, that's a really twisted, selfish thing to think. Like the whole world's not tapping their foot if you walk in two minutes late somewhere, you know, but, but in my head, everybody knew and was constantly focused on the fact that Cecily hadn't made it yet. I mean, 24 seven, that's what I thought anyone thought about. And um, so I let that just take over and, um, you know, it, I guess in 2017, it became very obvious to me that I was quitting things, quitting people, put, I was creating a schedule in a life around the drink. Now I, I was doing that in Conway too. When I, um, when I dropped classes or it started with skipping classes and dropped classes. And then I quit dance team and stuff like that. I didn't realize it then, but I was making the drink a priority. Um, and that just continued, you know? So it, it started, it's always been there. The beast, the beast has always been there. So we've all got something, man, that's wild. Yeah. Because I, in college and it was kind of like you said like you hang out with friends you're the girl that likes to party and everybody likes that it's fun and then yeah I would have never guessed honest to goodness knowing you in college um speaking of that not being able to guess what are some red flags uh you feel like people should look for regardless addiction like what are some things because like for me I would have been totally oblivious what are some things people could look for uh, that that's a scary thing too because I was um I have diagnosed myself as um, I was a high functioning alcoholic and I'm very, very lucky to say I never went to a job drunk. I never lost a job due to my, my drinking. I never wrecked a car. I never got a ticket. I never hurt anybody. I never even burned any bridges. Um, and that is because I was a good liar <laughs> and I'm a good manipulator. So, um, you know, I don't want to list off all of these things that I think are red flags. And then someone listens later and they're like, well, crap, that's me. And I don't even like, you know what I mean? Um, you know, there's normal things like isolating and, uh, you know, stuff like that. But for me, my biggest, my most, um, the best way I can answer that question is to say, you know, it is not in the frequency. It's not even in the substance. It's not even how you do it. It's in the why, you know, you could be drinking every day or eating sugar every day, shopping every day, um, whatever every day. Um, or you could be doing it on the first Friday of every month. You get to drink a bottle of wine. Um, that's, a, that's considerably less than what I was doing. But if you are living for that first Friday of the month because you get to drink a bottle of wine, then that's problematic, you know? And then there's some escaping that's going on in that. So I would, I would say, if you notice people saying like, God, it's just been a terrible day, a terrible week. I've, can we, will you go get a drink with me? I've got to have something to drink. Um, or I don't know, I just want to get drunk and forget it all. Or I don't know, I just want to whatever um because it's more than alcohol obviously but that that would say 
I, I would say pay attention to, if you're worried, pay attention to their, their why and, and what circumstances around them do you think, if any, are contributing to their desire to drink. Um, because I mean, up until Townsend, up until the hour before I told my parents, they were telling me all these things they thought, you know, um, you know, my mom was like, did you have too much Tylenol PM? Have you gotten hands on Ambien? Have you, you know, what is going on? I know she was texting a close family friend who's a nurse, you know, what could this be? What could this be? And um, that is scary because it's because I, I hit it so well. And I was, I had made a commitment and a decision that no one was going to find out. Now, I know people probably had an idea that I was not a very responsible drinker or um, I was, you know, I couldn't hold my liquor or whatever. Those are all very nice ways of saying alcoholic, by the way. Um, but I don't think anyone had any idea that I was, if I was awake, I was drinking. Um, and another thing about it is I, uh, that last month or two, well, the last year there was no, this was a, a job. It was, it, I was maintaining my health. There was no like pleasure. There was no, um, excitement. It was not fun. This was, I have to drink or I'm going to shake so uncontrollably bad that people are going to say, what is wrong with you? you know, um, especially at big family gatherings and stuff. Um, and it was no one around me that made, I, I don't, I don't mean family gatherings made me drink. I mean, anything, you know, I had to hide it. So I was feeling like crap and could have had a whole bunch of liquor in me. But um, yeah, I just, I, I was bound and determined. I was not going to let anybody find out. I had no plans to, to reach out, none. That is crazy. Wow. How scary for your mom. Like you said, like trying to diagnose you and figure out what's wrong when deep down, you know, what's wrong. Oh gosh, that's wild. Um, it, so we kind of, we kind of addressed this a minute ago. Like you said, you were sitting in the parking lot and you're like, yeah, Google's going to diagnose me, Dr. Google. But what made you want to make that change or made you make that decision to be like, okay, Susley, we're stepping it up. We're setting it down. We're going to come clean to the family. Like, what was that? moment of yep this is it well my parents had a lot to do with it um you know they may not have known exactly what was happening but they knew something was wrong um and hear me out i do not mean that they sat me down and said what's wrong i just i felt the knowledge coming at any time it was going to ping into their heads uh what was going on so um 2018 I had spent about two weeks in my room, two weeks in my room, unless I needed to go to the liquor store by myself. Um, I know that my roommates knew something was wrong, but I made myself extremely unapproachable. And I know that. Um, I mean, if somebody would have come at me and said, how are you today? I don't know what I would have said or done. Um, but yeah. So one day, now I told you I was, the drinking had become like a maintenance project. You know, um, I was drinking to get rid of the shakes. I wasn't sleeping very well. So like, I mean, I would like pass out between 10 and midnight and then I'd have to like wake up between two and three and drink some more so I could fall back asleep. So there, it was not uncommon with that cycle for me to be drunk at seven in the morning. <laughs> um, and I believe I spoke to my dad on the phone one uh, morning and I wasn't making any sense. And he called my mom, he said, something's wrong, go get her now. And all of a sudden I'm laying in my little lovely cave of isolation, you know, hating every second of it, but convinced that was where I needed to be. Um, and someone's banging on my door. Um, this was not a place I owned, not even my own apartment or anything. Um, and I find out it's my mom. You know, she's like, Sessie, Sessie, let me in, let me in. And in my head, I'm just like, nope, <laughs> I'm not moving. There's no way she's getting in here. And I just stayed there. And I was just like, nope, I'm not letting her in. I think she probably called. And I was like, no, no, no. Well, um, you know, I'm not a mom yet, but I've heard that when you're scared like that, that you can make mountains move. So um, I imagine, I imagine her picking the house up over you. 
and probably and sitting you sitting there by yourself on the bed like just lifting the whole home just out of fear uh, yeah uh I, she could have done it i think so um all of a sudden she's in the house <laughs> how'd you do that so this the door she's banging on at this point is my bedroom door i still think i'm not gonna let her you know whatever so finally she gets in there and she's probably honestly disgusted at the way i'm living you know i mean not my mom wasn't disgusted she loved me but I, i'm sure that she was like um her eyes were opened to what was going on still not the alcohol though because i had that hidden and um so i'm like okay i mean i guess i'll go with you whatever <laughs> whatever um i was probably drunk and feeling good you know like all right i'm gonna milk it let mom take care of me like i have the flu or something so um there are two circumstantial factors here that get me to my my reach out point and that is she got me to their home in bryant and i had this much of a drink left and i had no car so i you know i i went upstairs like passed out happy i was like whatever um I laugh because I have battled it. It is not a funny thing. Um, so then I wake up, I convince her to take me um, to back home to get school stuff because I was supposed to enroll in another, I was supposed to try again school that spring semester, you know, and I, it, I'm not proud to say how much I lied, but I, I did and I, I got back and I, found the very last bit of booze I had. And um, then I got, then we went back to Bryant, you know, for good. And I woke up that night, it must've been January like 29th or something like that. The night before my sobriety date. Um, and I woke up at like two or three going through withdrawal, you know, the normal thing. But typically at my home, I was prepared and I had plenty of alcohol. Um, I didn't have that and, and um, you know, there was nothing in their house, their house. And that that's a miracle. I, I don't mean it like that. I just mean, I did grow up with alcohol around me. Um, but that's not why, you know, I am who I am, you know, so I, I went downstairs and I did expect to find a, a beer or maybe some wine. I knew they didn't have any vodka, which is what I wanted. I knew that that wasn't there, but um, there was nothing there. And um, at this point, my body, like, you know, I talked about my hand shaking, my, it was in my legs. I was having a hard time walking and I crawled down their stairs, just desperate to find something. And I didn't find anything. I'm clicking a pen, which I realize you might hear. I'm sorry. Um, and so I get back up there and I'm like going, get, uh, get back up to bed and um, I'm going through like trying to distract myself, you know, and I couldn't even hold my phone up my hands were shaking and um i i just this is what i call my moment of clarity um and this is when i was introduced to my higher power who i call god but i heard my own voice say you could just go tell them the truth um and that you know i hear that that you know sometimes i say i feel like i have a little good genie and bad genie or whatever on my shoulder and i heard the good one for the first time in my life, I felt like, um, like, and now sometimes really good ideas come or like the right thing. Come, and I'm like, who is that talking? And that, yeah. And that is, you know, that's, that's God trying to tell me what I need to do. But so I, I heard my own voice say, you could just go tell him the truth. And I was like, what? Mm, or not. So I debated for, um, a couple of hours and um my other option now before i heard that voice i um i was trying to figure out what was i going to do and tell mom to get me to take me back to my car in like five hours so i could be at the liquor store at 8 a.m you know like i mean i was desperate i felt terrible um but i was like you know what this seems easier <laughs> right now. I mean, honestly, there's really nothing beautiful about it, about that moment, other than I listened. Um, Cause I, I was feeling, there was, there was not much else I could do. And so um, I went down there 
uh, I went downstairs. I'd had my mom so stressed, I know. So I'm sure she stayed up till three or four reading on the couch downstairs and then fell asleep. So I went down there and I was like, you need to go get dad up. Um, it was like 5 a.m. on a weekday. I was like, you need to go wake him up. And she's like, I, I don't even know what she said. But, um, you know, he came downstairs and I just, I listed off this, a bunch of other stuff, a bunch of other mistakes I'd made. Um, like, I'm not enrolled in school. I don't think I can get it, be enrolled in school this next semester because I'm a grade. You know, like, um, I'm not being responsible with my money. I, uh, my health insurance has lapsed. Like, just to be quite honest with you, the alcohol was at the end of that list. And all I could muster the courage to say was, um, and I've been drinking a lot. So that's why you see me shaking a little bit right now. And um, I think they could probably see the shake. I felt myself shaking up here. And um, they just, I mean, it's, it's like they just knew what to do. Like almost as if they'd handled it before and they hadn't. Again, I think that was, you know, divine intervention there. But, you know, my dad was kind of talking to me about how much and how often trying to decide if I needed to detox or whatever. Um, and my mom was, you know, looking up uh, the closest like meeting or whatever I was going to do. And they welcomed me to move back in. And they, I mean, all they said was, let's get you better. You know, they, there was no interrogation. Like I thought I was going to be in for, uh, they just, I mean, it, like I said, it's like they had done it before. And, uh, so, I mean, I just, I don't think I probably had any tears in me to cry. I was so dehydrated and sick. Like, I just, I don't know what my reaction was. It probably seemed very apathetic, but I was just, I mean, I was crying inside for sure. And, um, so, you know, that we made it, that, that was our plan. Um, but I was still lying and I was still lying about how much I had been drinking, um, and I remember my dad said, do you think you need to go to a detox? And I was like, no, I'm good. Um, as long as you get me another drink, I'm okay. Yeah. I mean, that was, I, I was like, you know what? Honestly, like some beers would be good to help me wean off of this. But anyway, so I was like, no, no, I'm good. Well, that day, you know, uh, carries on and my shakes just get worse and worse. And it was no longer shakes. It was like convulsions, my whole body. And, um, so I think towards the end of the afternoon, I said, you know, mom, I'm really scared. Um, I do think we should go to the hospital. I don't really know what's going on. This was probably, I mean, we were probably coming up on 12 hours of no alcohol and it was probably the longest I had gone in a very long time, maybe closer to like 16 hours. I don't know. Um, but it had been the longest I'd, I'd been in a long time. Um, and so I knew it was just going to get worse. And so, um, but I was, I'm, you know, I'm vain. And I said, but you're going to help me change my outfit first before we go to the hospital. And so I stood up to help, um, to let her help me change and everything. And I think I had a seizure. That was the first seizure I had. Um, and I don't remember much of it but I do remember my mom's face and how scared she was. Um, and, you know, then I was kind of like out of it and I was like, well, maybe we should call 911. She already knew all this, you know, like she was like, dad was on the phone, you know, an ambulance was like coming and everything. So, you know, and not everybody goes through a withdrawal like this, you know, I don't want people to, you know, hear this and who are thinking, blacked out on one more time um and to think it's gonna be that terrible because it's it's not um no I mean it mine was it not everybody will go through that when they stop drinking but um I'm glad that I did I was scared straight like that show you know um and I uh spent a week in the critical care unit at Salim Memorial Hospital and I had um I think I had two more seizures that day in the little ER place, I remember my dad holding my ankles and I just kept asking my mom to hold my head because I was like, I thought that would keep me, you know, whatever. I think I yelled at some nurses there and I'm very sorry for that. Um, 
I was not my best self, but um, <laughs> then I was having what you call DTs, which are delirium tremens. I am no medical expert. And when you start talking about the brain, it, I don't know, but all I know is your brain goes berserk because you don't have this stuff coming in anymore. Something with the dopamine, serotonin, hormones. I don't know, <laughs> but um, my brain was going berserk and I, I don't remember much of that experience until, um, you know, the right doctor, you know, there were, there were some other things leading up to that, but the right doctor who also had past lived experience with, um, substance abuse took a look at my chart and, um, was like, everybody stop. This is my case now. And, um, this person came in and, um, I don't even think I was, I, I was listening, but I know that this person was counseling my parents and my sister through, you know, like, this is what's going on. She is an alcoholic. It is very bad. This is what's going to happen after, you know. Um, so um, I started to come to a little bit because I think they got another drug out of me. Um, they were pumping me full of something that if they would have kept pumping me with it, I would have left with another problem, I think. But, um, you know, I don't know. But finally, they called and I had some, there were some people that came to, two women came to visit me um, who also had lived experience and um, they just sat there for hours and they were these, you know, these women who were beautiful and had families and and husbands and looked great and were hilarious and just very genuine and had all of this stuff that I was so upset at myself for not having. And they had what I had, <laughs> alcohol, you know, they were like, and we can't drink either, you know, like, um, and I was just amazed, you know? And um, so when I left, I was given strict orders to find a 12 step program and I chose AA and um, to go to a meeting every single day. And I had pe plenty of people in my life say, you ain't got nothing else going on, so make it happen. So it just wasn't an option for me. Uh, and um, my mom had to drag me to my first few meetings, but um, you know, I did and I learned the science of addiction and it was in those rooms that I learned I can never have a drink ever, ever, ever again. Um, now in my sobriety, I've worked, I've used different coping mechanisms, different programs, different therapy types to learn a lot of other things about me. But um, the 12 step program, I mean, it, uh, it introduced me to myself is what, that's what all that work did. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what motivated me, what ticked me, what, made me sad, happy, glad, stressed. I didn't know how I handled stress until I had these really hard questions in front of me asking me and I had to write it down and I was like, oh, okay. You know, that's why, that's why I did what I did. And so slowly, <coughs> excuse me, um, I just took one day at a time and just didn't have a drink. And then I just didn't have a drink. And then when people would give me suggestions who had been through something I'd been through. I took them. I didn't argue, um, you know, cause I had someone in my early sobriety say, you just have to be willing. You just have to be willing to try. And then when you get comfortable with trying, you, you've got to be willing to learn. And I mean, I just hit the ground running and I have not had to have a drink since. Um, I haven't had a drink today. I think I've got a pretty good chance at staying sober the rest of the day. Um, but that's, that's how I take it is one day at a time. And yeah. I, yeah. So, um, so I have two notes on that one. You may not have been your best self, but you looked your best self girl. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You said your mom dressed you. You had to be looking cute to go to the hospital. I don't think that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, she did. But I think, I don't think we got any change in happening. Oh, okay. Well, then never. I did not look my best self. Uh, no. Well, I was trying to help. That, that, <laughs> Very <my much>. <laughs> <laughs> I waited like a few more minutes than maybe. And Golly. I didn't look my best self because I was laying in the back of that ambulance. And I'll never forget one of the EMTs was like, like pulling stuff off me and putting stuff on me. And in the same breath was like, 
don't I know you from somewhere? And I was so embarrassed because I was like, I look so terrible. And then I was like, well, you got other things to worry about. <laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like having a seizure on the floor of a knee. Um, but I you're vehicle. trying to remind me I looked, I looked great. So. Um, we're just going to pretend it looked really good. Uh, I just got finished watching Inventing Anna. Have you seen that yet? Yeah, it's crazy. Okay. That's yeah. what I envisioned. Like, I literally envisioned you in the back of the courtroom. I mean, like, I'm not going until I look <laughs> my best. That's literally what played in my mind. Jeannie back there being like, Cecily, get in the freaking ambulance. Yeah. Well, and you I, being like, no. Functionality, so. <laughs> uh, yeah. it, my my uh, stubbornness was on that level, for sure. Listen, our family tree may be very like, far, far away, but we got the stubborn. Yeah, we and did. we got it good. Oh, it's bad. It's dangerous. It is a little bit dangerous. Um, I also want to make the point. You you had pointed this out a couple of times. Um, so I always try to reference during my live streams that in the words of Brene Brown, not exactly, but we're not here to be right. We're here to get it right. So these stories are 1000% just personal stories. That doesn't mean that your story is going to be the same or the next story is going to be Thing. everybody experiences things completely different and I just want to be able to share stories so people can be more aware because your story is completely different than Laura's that completely different than Kyle's and everybody else's so I want to share all the perspectives that I can to help people be a little bit more aware so a thousand percent like your red flags and what triggered you and all of those things are be different for every but this is just one side of the story that we want to share for sure yeah, I really appreciate you stressing that because I, I do say that a lot, you know, like, because it's, it's real easy to talk about your experience and then sound preachy. Um, and sometimes I have to like pause and be like, but it is not one size fits all. Um, I believe it was Demi Lovato. Um, I watched, you know, her, um, their documentary on uh, Dancing with the Devil about a year ago or whatever. And they really inspired me when they said, um, recovery is not one size fits all. And I, I think they are still learning through that, but um, it, it's, it's truly not, it's not. Some people do just stop cold turkey like I did and they do not look back. They don't, their hands don't even shake. Yeah, you know? absolutely. All our bodies are different, so. Absolutely, thousand percent. Um, yeah, and we can all we can all deal with addiction all different ways. I love how you talked about you know you're talking about it could be shopping, it could be you know uh, having that bottle of wine on the month. For me, when I went through a super hard time, I actually one thousand percent went through like retail therapy, which I am not somebody that spends money. I'm super like like I'm pinching pennies. And that was something I noticed later on was why did I buy all this junk? And it was like day after day after day. And it was things that I'd never spend money on usually, but it made me feel good right then. So, right. No, I'm, I'm the same. Cause I can do it with shopping too. It's like a high to know you're going to get a package or something. Um, but yeah, like, and we all, we, we do it in different ways. And the bottom line is if you're not like taking a pause when you feel a negative emotion to say, how should I handle this? Then whatever you're doing is probably not right. It's that compulsive, like feeling like you're run on a motor and I just had a bad day. So I just ate a whole cake or, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's those, which I've done. Um, but it, it's, it's all different. You know, As some people are workaholics, you know, and they're just like, I just committed to all this stuff. And you just find this thing to overwhelm your life. So you don't have to think about the thing you don't want to think about. That's right. Brene Brown is one of my favorite authors. And one thing that she talks about is that um, emotions, you have to feel them to get through them. So yeah. If you don't feel them, you're just patching them up and they're going to still be there at the end of the day. So the workaholics and the shopaholics, all those people, your feelings are still going to be there when you get that credit card bill in the mail. So you might as well feel them. I mean, just like I said, I lived 27 years of my life not really understanding how we can become chemically dependent on alcohol. I also lived thinking, well, if if this is un if something is uncomfortable, we should not endure it. And that's crap. That's crap. And thinking, fake it till you make it. That's crap. Don't do that. You know what I mean? Um, this is too hard. Run away. Like, and and one of the first things I heard in sobriety was some of the best lessons I've ever learned have been the most uncomfortable things to walk through 
ever. And I, I have the ability now to like, like when I'm just like a ball of stress and I'm like, this is way too hard, <laughs> you know, um, I can stop and I can say, there's going to be a payout, <laughs> be something good that comes from this. And it may not be the one you want, but um, you're growing when it's uncomfortable. And I had no concept of that, none. Um, so it was another big trigger in my drinking. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, to go off that. So one thing that I did I ended up going the same thing as you is almost the same story. Mine were with grief, um, which I feel like addiction and grief can kind of be the same thing. Well, you can easily fall into both of them. Um, but yeah, so grieving from losing all these things and traumatic experiences happening, I went to therapy and it was the hardest decision I made because it's hard because they get in there and they really see you and they dig deep and they pull back the layers that you've like put up and those walls you've put up and it is the most uncomfortable but rewarding thing done. Yeah. I, I heard, what did I hear the other day? Oh, something like TikTok or something. And it was like, I don't know who needs to hear this, but um, achieving what you want to achieve and, and living that life you want to live, whatever it is, is directly related to like the sacrifice you have to make and how willing you are to get uncomfortable. Like, like it's, they said something like, um, it was money. It was like, when you're trying to save and be financially fit, um, you're going to feel broke and um, miss these miss things that other people get while it's making you rich. It's going to make you feel broke. You know, like when you're going to therapy and you're addressing your mental health and you're like, I'm going to handle this. It's going to make you feel lost, isolated. It's going to make you feel like you're the only one in the world that struggles up here. Um, and it is making you so strong, but you don't feel that then, you know, and it's, it's just, it, that really resonated with me. So Oh, yeah, I know all these motivational speakers and Facebook philosophers. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking about more of the dance moves, but uh, whatever. Wait, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay, so what do you feel like, you know, you talked about all the coping mechanisms and everything and your faith. What do you feel like has helped you stay sober the most? Like what helps you stay online with Cecily now? Well, I have to, um, and it's usually like my sister or my mom or my dad. Um, I have to tell myself to pick up the phone and send a text that says, I'm okay, but I'm feeling blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I'm feeling pretty low. I'm not myself right now. Um, and I've kind of been battling a season of that here lately, uh, just going through different changes of life and, um, seasons of life and stuff like that. Um, but I have found, I either do that, I text, call somebody, it's normally a text, um, or I'll write it down, a journal, you know, and something about typing it, saying it out loud or writing it down, it takes the power away. Like you write it and you see, you write, I'm not okay. You see it on the paper and you're like, those words don't have anything over me. That's just a feeling, you know, like you're not okay right now. And when I can do that and realize I am more powerful than this season, then I can stop and I can say, all right, what's the next thing? Um, you know, in, our, in the 12 step program meetings I go to, I hear that a lot, you know, um, just do the next right thing. And somebody actually changed it the other day and said, I don't know if it's the next right thing, but the next indicated thing. And, and here's my take on that. You know, that gets me by more than one day at a time. And, um, you know, I don't always know what the next right thing is. Uh, I was just talking to a friend about this the other day. I said, you know, like I've been feeling really low. Um, I can feel really low about being single sometimes. I'm like, is this it? Like, is it just me and my dog? I mean, because I want to accept it and like live it, you know? Um, there's, I have a toolkit of many things I could do. You know, I can text a friend. I can go to a meeting. I can exercise. I can drink a bunch of water. I can read. There's tons of stuff. And I may not know what the right one, the right coping mechanism is at that point. But what I do know is what the wrong one is. And I know without a doubt, without hesitation, that the wrong thing to do, and the wrong way to cope is, here comes that work, attention. Um, 
would be to put a drink or a drug in me and to lock my doors and to isolate and to not talk about it. And, and if I can, in that moment, if I can recognize that, which I always do, then I can just go over to my list of stuff that might work and start, you know, um, you know, and it, I might think, oh, well, I know what I need to do. I need to go shopping. And that's probably not right either, um, you know, but as long as I stay away from that, this is absolutely wrong, dangerous, and not good for you if you want to continue being the best version of yourself you can be. Um, and that, in that pause is, is when I can, when I can cope. A lot of people say like, someone asked me this in an interview, like a job interview the other day. It was like, how do you, <clears throat> how do you cope with stress? And I just wanted to be like, that is the hardest question. Like, I don't know. Can my friends tell you? Like, I don't, I don't really. I drink water. I read, I exercise. Right. Yeah. Like I'm, I can sit here and, and paint you a beautiful picture of all the right answers, but like, you know, I'm probably a little bit more snappy and I'll crawl in my room and like eat a bunch of stuff and you know what I mean? Um, but the, the main thing I do is I remember what not to do, you know, and um, then that, that keeps me guided and grounded, I think. I like that. That's a really good way to look at life, honestly. You may not know the right one, but you've got a toolkit to close your eyes and pick from, but you know, the yeah. I love that. I have a funny story on that. And that is because I read, I learned that from a book I read called do not read this book. It is. And the subtitle is time management for creative people. <laughs> and, um, instead of making it taught me that I don't make to do lists. I make to don't lists because my brain, I don't know. It just, sometimes a to-do list can overwhelm me or whatever. So, but it's kind of like that. Like I, say I've got a ton of stuff staring me in the face at work. Um, if I can write down three things that do not deserve warrant or need my attention today, then I can go back over to this long thing and be like, Oh, I guess I'll start with this one. You know what I mean? Uh, I'm not going to say I'm the one who's like, I'm going to find the hardest one and do that one first. I rarely do that to tell you the truth. I don't do that, but I, I do at least figure out like, okay, you do not need to go shopping and buy flowers and decorate a cake today or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Probably uh, and I, sometimes I have to look at it that way. And, you know, every day I have to wake up and say, you need to not isolate, stay quiet or take a drink today, you know, and um, you're going to have a good day. I love it. I love it. We can make life so easy. I feel like everybody watching, everybody listening can make a list of two or three things that today I'm not gonna. And if you don't do that, you've had a good day. Like that's something to celebrate right there. Okay. So you've been super open about all of this. Like I said earlier in the very beginning, you started a blog, you started posting a lot. You're sharing stories and videos and pictures and just all these things. What made you want to share your story? Like it, it First, you were the Cecily that isolated and didn't even tell your family, didn't tell anybody. So what in the world made you want to share it with the world? Um, well, I, um, I went back to school and that is through the work of a professor who will be near and dear to me forever and ever, um, Dr. Reva Brown at UCA, go Bears. Um, she empowered me and made me realize how that I'm a, a, have a talent in writing. You know, she said, you're a good storyteller. That's why you need to be in PR mark. You know, like she, she reminded me of that. So she said, you are good at these things. And I didn't know. And, um, there was an assignment to start a blog, you know, and it was probably just to get us on the software or the, you know, the Squarespace or whatever. So you could go tell a, an interviewer that you can do that. But I, um, I thought of a great story, uh, name the sober story but or the sob story and sober you know however you want to read it and um i just once i started writing i i couldn't stop and i realized that maybe that is my thing is maybe i am a storyteller you know and um it was like so good for my soul it just like when i finished it all i was just like this like i wouldn't wish this on anyone but what i went through is beautiful and everybody's is like that um and the main reason I'm so transparent is, is a little selfish, but um, it's the more people that know that Cecily does not drink alcohol and does not need to drink alcohol, um, then the more people I have to answer to 
if I were to ever try to take a drink again. I, I went to a, uh, a supper club wedding. Robert Andrews, yes. And um, I was like, I was like with Tommy Lane. and the, I was with a bunch of people who knew and loved me. And I was like, you know, some people suggest to get like a soda or like water because just the act of having something in your hand at a party. And I tried that. I had to put it down because everybody was like, what are you doing? Like they thought it was, I was like, forget this. I will go like my hands are empty. You know, leaves, gives, lets me record. I could not do it. Um, and, uh, so I, I feel like every once in a while, my story touches someone and, and might help someone. Um, maybe it happens more often than I think, but the main reason is because, you know, I need people to know because I, I need people to bang on my door if I disappear one day, you know? I love so. that. Also, I want to say I've had, let's see. You're probably the third or fourth story I've had regarding addiction in some way, shape, or form, and yours ended up being a lot prettier than other people. So shout out to your parents and your family and the friends that you have so closely, because the other ones I have uh, interviewed were homeless. Their families cut them off. They had barely had clothes on their body because they were that far down, and everybody they loved had to cut them off because that's how bad they had gotten. So props to you and just having an amazing family because I feel like that is huge. And don't get me wrong, the other ones had amazing families and that's in the end what made them get better. However, the family had to make a choice because it got so bad that for everyone's good, they had to cut them off. And like, these are the consequences that happen when you lie and manipulate people. And yeah, so, yeah. I, I say that all the time. I'm like, I had an army of people and I, um, that is a blessing. I feel very lucky because I know that's not, in fact, the majority of people that I sit in rooms with and, and listen to their stories and I, you know, we share things. Most people are, are more like that story. Um, so I, um, I, I'm not going to be like, I had it easy or whatever. Cause of course it was hard. I was very blessed along the way. Yeah. 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 No, I think everybody's story is very, very hard and there's ended the way it needed to end for them to get help because obviously staying with their family and getting free rides or whatever just was not the option for them. So it is cool to know that it can work out the way as yours did. Cause like I said, the other stories I've heard just weren't as um, we'll say pretty for lack of a better word. Um, okay. So speaking of other people struggling with this, what advice would you give loved ones of someone going through addiction? So for example, I've got a friend. I feel like they're struggling with addiction. What's some advice you have for me for them or parents or something of that sort? You just have to absolutely love them through that. Now, um, I, that does not mean that I'm saying like, don't cut them off and don't no blah, blah, blah. Like you may love them from a locked, from behind a locked door. You may love them as their roommate, their mother, their partner, whatever. Um, you still got to take care of you. And when you feel like you're in danger as the person, the loved one, or if you do, you know, make some moves. I don't know what those moves are, but I know that you've got to love that person and, um, you know, save the interrogation and the, why do you drink and blah, blah, blah. That's, I know it's probably hard for like a parent or like a wife or a husband to hear, but that may not be your place to, to peel back those layers of the onion. You know, that may need to be for someone unbiased, a John Doe therapist who doesn't know your family and the ins and outs. So they can give them sound advice. Um, just love them and, you know, check in. I, now, I mean, that's hard checking in because if you've cut them off, but um, I, I don't, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I don't, you, you can check in, you know, say a prayer, uh, get, get in touch with your higher power and just trust that, that God's got it and um, stay strong in what you've, in the boundaries you've made, but love them. And that, you know, I think, um, I think a lot of people can get hung up on the wanting to figure out why someone wants to escape so bad. Well, got like, 
Yeah. Not to interrupt you. Kind of, kind of like you said earlier, you don't know why. Yeah. That just adds more pressure. Like I knew you would question me. I knew you would interrogate me like you were waiting to do. And you don't know why. I mean, that's part of learning that you're trying to figure that out. We don't know. Um, or maybe we, we know for sure, but it's not, we don't want you to know. Right. Um, that the addict, the person struggling with that, whatever substance, whatever vice it is, will find someone to tell all of that stuff to, um, especially if they work a 12 step, you know, there's, there's some work in there for that. Um, and they will come to you as a loved one and, you know, I call it making amends. They will come restore that relationship when it's time. Um, but, you know, just time and just remember, you cannot interrogate them. You cannot interrogate the beast out of them. You cannot get the ugly out of them. And nine times out of 10, that's going to result in someone saying, I don't freaking know. And I'm going to go have another one of whatever it is you're telling me to stay away from. Uh, so... Yeah, I, I can see that a thousand percent for sure. I've been told uh, something I thought was super helpful in live streams and podcast episodes was you can't force someone to get help, which I found was super interesting because it talked about, you know, I had a bunch of people reach out talking about um, getting someone in AA or getting someone in a rehab and forcing them to do that. But then when they get there, competition anyway. And so basically their advice was you can't force someone to get help that's not ready for help. They can't even, you cannot want to get sober for your partner, your kids, you, no, nothing. You have to be selfish in that moment and know that you have to get sober for you because you eventually, even kids grow up and marriages grow and all of this and people leave and come back and circumstances change. And it, but one thing that doesn't change is you. You know, and if you, if you get sober for you, then you can maintain that sobriety. I don't want to say a lot easier, but it's just going to make more sense to you. You know, you're more stable than people you can't control. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, with that, what advice would you give someone who's struggling personally? Um, I go, I would say go sit in a meeting. <laughs> um, I've heard a bunch of people say, and so I just sat in a meeting, maybe they had a drink before, maybe they were drunk then, maybe they never came back, but, um, you know, and then, then they say like, and I realized maybe, you know, whatever, but if, if you're not trying to do that, um, start thinking about your why, you know, why are you doing the things that you're doing? Just like if you were, um, in a job that was like kind of toxic or like not good for you. And, you know, before you just leave, you, you kind of start thinking like, well, why? And, and why, what triggers these people to do that or whatever? Um, why do I act the way I do here? Whatever. Like, why are you putting that thing in your body? Whatever it is. Is it like, you know, all the time? Is it only when you're feeling negative? Um, that's going to tell you a lot right there. I think, cause like I said, you could be having one drink a month, but if you are living for that drink, it's totally different. That's, that's totally different than someone going out with their friends and accidentally drinking a fifth of vodka, but then they go on about their life and they handle business, you know, um, it, you know, and, and that, that word compulsion, you know, if you feel like you're driven kind of almost like by a motor and like you, you get in these moments, like you're staring at the bottle and you're like, do I drink? Do I not? Do I drink? Do I not? If you feel like at some point that decision is made and you didn't even have anything to do with it, then, you know. Might be time to address something. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that's kind of what it is, you know. Yeah, absolutely. We've been planning this for months. I'm glad we finally got to chit chat. And I actually saw uh, Laura Montferti log on here. We've talked about you several times. Hopefully you have heard us. Um, yeah, you guys are amazing. Just thank you for sharing your story, truly. Well, Townsend, thank you for doing this. Thank you for thinking that I was worthy of, of this and for reaching out to me and, and, and visiting with me. But um, seriously, what you, what you did, you just did it. You had, you said, Hey, I've got some lived experience in this area. And, you know, um, I, I think it's, um, per, you know, it's not a coincidence that we have said several times we're not meant to be alone. We are wired to need people. Um, and, you know, that's a, a great title for what you're doing, you know, uh, just reminding people that 
somebody out there can sit in a room with you, nod their head and say, I feel you, I feel you, I feel you. I get it and I beat it. Let me walk with you. We're going to do this. So love it. I love it. Let me walk with you. Yep. Yeah. All right. So I told you earlier, you have signed up now for the Townsend group. I'm going to hold you accountable for, for crying out. So you're welcome. You Good. Can. I'm telling you. Yeah. Tell all your people too. Yeah. <laughs> all right, everybody, we're holding Cecily accountable. Me as well. We all need to be held accountable. But, all right, guys. Have a good evening, and I'll see you later. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this conversation and are interested in becoming a sponsor, feel free to shoot me an email at townsendtmusic at hotmail.com or shoot me a message on any social media platform at Townsend Team Music for more information. I would love for you to become a member to help spread awareness that you're not alone. If you're looking to buy or sell, I have the perfect realty company for you. Clark & Co Realty is located in the Benton, Bryant, Arkansas area. And they understand that buying or selling a home is more than just a transaction. It's a life-changing experience. That's why their team of highly seasoned real estate professionals is dedicated to providing exceptional, personalized services for all their clients. They truly take great pride in the relationships they build, and they always work relentlessly on the client's behalf to help them achieve their perfect real estate goals. They always have the client in mind, and I can speak firsthand when I say how reliable, trustworthy, and quick they were. When I was looking to buy my first home, they were there with me every step of the way, answering every question I could think of. They showed me a great amount of knowledge and patience through the process. It's no wonder they've won so many awards for their outstanding services and their excellent relationships with clients. So if you're looking to buy or sell, there is no better option than Clark & Co Realty.